the Lord knew that my fights after kind of evolved into emancipation for others. I would get involved in a fight if I saw that you're picking somebody who is weaker and more vulnerable than you. When you're bullied, it means that they're just going through your boundaries. They're rubbishing it. They're discarding it. They're making you feel like you're insignificant and you're not relevant. So I think in those seminal moments, I recognized my worth. I demonstrated my worth. You can recognize your worth, but I demonstrated my worth. I no longer cared what people thought of me. The reality is, and as well for a lot of black women when they get racially bullied, is that sometimes nobody's there to defend you. Nobody's there to, to support you. So you've got to build some internal resources within yourself. And hopefully you might now, that now in 2023, there are support systems in place to support you. And welcome to Everyday Leadership podcast where you get to listen and learn how to lead yourself personally and professionally through the lessons and life experiences my guests share in the hope that it challenges and inspires you to lead yourself from the inside out and not the outside in. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Leadership and today I have the absolute pleasure of having a conversation with mental health a leadership expert you know she's a dynamic trained psychotherapist business coach qualified social worker founder and ceo not just one but two companies you know you got frontline coaches in the mix you got frontline therapists in the mix she's seen to be a tedx because well you know she's got a podcast she's doing a doctorate at the moment as she's been in loads and loads of different um, publications, CBS, Fox, NBC, Metro, Stylist, Days, Market Watch. In fact, I actually found her through another publication as well. So she's about the place. And today, you know, we get to dive into the world of Ngozi Cadmus. How are you doing? Oh, the trout goes wild. <laughs> oh, my God. I totally get how that football was in. Artists must feel in the stage where the crowd just goes, ah, right, you had me up. I'm doing well, so how are you? I'm good. I'm good. It is a, it's a beautiful Monday, you know. Uh, we just had a great half an hour conversation <laughs> before, we, before we even delved into this year. <laughs> I'm actually feeling, I'm feeling pumped. I'm feeling pumped. I know this is going to be dope. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you for having me. I am honoured to speak on your platform and, you know, just built us a good rapport even just before the recording. So I'm looking forward to what we discuss um, on today's um, podcast. Sure. And I always like to go back, way back, you know, just to understand a bit about the person. So let's go back to... 10 year old let's go back to a 10 year old Ngozi what's she like um 10 year old Ngozi was <clears throat> perceived as less than smart below average um very um what would be the word a bit of a pushover and was I think very much bullied and a lot of my talents that people that know about me now that say, oh, English needs this and English needs that was probably quite dormant at that age. So that was 10 year old English really was contrastingly different to 15 year old English because of the circumstances she was experiencing in that time. When you say perceived, perceived by who? 
You just said that she was perceived as. Is that what you said? Yeah, well, yeah, they're perceived as less than smart. Um, basically, I realized, and I didn't realize in that moment, this is like a retrospective realization, but I was on the special needs table when I was in primary school. I wasn't aware of it then, though I was aware of the fact. It took me till I was 10 or 11, because it was in year six when I was 11, to realize I was not on a smart table. I didn't know there were different levels of tables, because there was red, green, yellow. So at that age, I didn't know. I only recognized it when I realized my best friend at the time was in a different table. And when it dawned on me that why is she and a few of my other friends on that table, and I, with another few of my friends, are in this table. And when I looked around the people on the table, one person that pooed on themselves, <laughs> one person sitting there reading the, the, the dictionary, one person's got their nose up, their hand up their nose. I started just waiting a minute, what table am I on? Like, <laughs> So it dawned on me in that moment, and I think without understanding it, I knew that this table, what this meant in terms of the levels, should not be my definition. Um, but I understand that I didn't show my level of intelligence prior to that because I didn't take school seriously. I was obviously very extremely bullied. And I didn't peak until secondary school or even college. So I was seen as below average. And um, one thing that you said then, 15-year-old you was very different to 10-year-old. What happened within those five years that kind of started to change and shape the way they look at it? One of the key things that happened was I stopped getting bullied. So I think that was a critical watershed moment in my life. It was age 13 that I think I finally emancipated. <laughs> you know, rose up like a phoenix. But yeah, I stopped getting bullied um, at age 13. So I think that had a significant impact on my personality because if you imagine a constraint in an environment where you're being bullied, whether it's, you know, in as adults, racially bullied, or just being bullied in general, it's going to affect your, your self-esteem. It's going to affect the way you are, let alone being a child when you're just still trying to learn and understand certain things. So once I stopped being bullied, my personality changed. Uh, so the Ingazi now, though completely different from 15-year-old Ingazi, is more closer to that Ingazi than the Ingazi of 10 years old, if that makes sense. At the same time, the same constraining influences of being bullied, I had to experience as an adult. But I started working at a very young age and got bullied at work as well. And it took me eight years to feel like I finally understood my work role as an adult, as a black woman in my different working environments. So it was a bit like a parallel process that I went from childhood from 13, you can never bully me again, um, you know, but when I went into work, I had a different presentation at work than I did in at home. And this wasn't a racial thing. It was, again, trying to understand who I was. So, yes, yeah, so you're telling me that the differences between 15-year-old um, you and even growing up, you went to the workplace. You had eight years. Yeah, it took me eight years to find my voice in the workplace. And then it took me, what, 13 years were all... Yeah, well, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't bullied at one years old, but, you know, 13 years to um, find my voice as a young person in school. So it's actually quite an interesting parallel. I've had different peaks, I think, in my level of intelligence. I don't say my academic ability, because I was always intelligent. So growing up, I always knew I was intelligent. And it wasn't a knowing that, you, oh, I know I'm intelligent. I just was able to always converse at a high level. But it, didn't, it never shaped academically. I wasn't good at spelling, wasn't good at writing, wasn't good at the key kind of components, you know, math, science and English and stuff. 
Um, and then in secondary school, I realized that, oh, all you got to do is just regurgitate what you've learned. Whether you really understand it or not, it's not as important. <laughs> it's more about what you can do in the exams. And once I understood this, the, I guess there is a skill in memorization or learning, you know, you know, math, science and English, I got high in levels. Now, that's why if you ask me math, science and English, I don't know what to, I don't understand anything. But I was able to pass my GCSE. I brought through for the skin in my teeth because I was, I was actually quoting. I was um, predicted U's and E's in GCSEs and I got A's and B's and one C. But in year 10, I was predicted U's and E's. Yeah, this is where, hmm. No, no, no. No, there's different level of getting through like the skin of your teeth and killing it like that because that's, that's levels different, you know. So what was it that, like, what was it that helped you to learn like i don't know what was it like for me i'm like listen to that like that use an e's to a's b's and one c that's a massive massive difference well that was retaking everything i will say this um a big significant drive was my mom the last time my mom came into school she was speaking to the science teachers and you remember them science teachers back in them days were always irish boy you didn't mess with those irish teachers boy um, but they basically said, I wish I could do an Irish action. But they often go to get easy and use, but she's smarter than that. And my mum looked at me with pain in her eyes because she's never come to anything positive in school. And she just said, why? Like, she kept saying, why? I was like, mum, beat me. <laughs> beat me. Beat me. And she just couldn't look at me. She just shed tears. And I think for the first time, seeing my mum cry for my education really made me realise I'm not trying to be like some of the, some of my peers and my colleagues that I actually believed I would pass. Even though my results were saying that, I just had this strong innate belief that I would pass. So I realized, what's the discount? What is going on? I don't like school. School's understimulating, but I cannot leave GCSEs reviews because it will affect my future. I think I just knew. When I looked at my mom's eyes and I looked at the teachers and they were just looking in like exasperation and going, like Inglesy, you're, you're actually smart, but you're not showing it. I said, okay, well, that was year 11, beginning of year 11. I said, okay, well, I've got less than nine months to pull this through. I got to change something. I retook all of the exams. I memorized. I studied 12 hours a day. Like, you know, when you break up in secondary school at, the end of year, at March, so between like March and June, I studied 12 hours a day. I would not advise that because I went eating. But I had to do some ridiculous amount of re revision and I stopped fighting. I I had to, I guess that's where agency comes from and why I'm so passionate about black women and black people being agentic. I was fighting and one of the things about the fights that I was doing was the fight, the people that I was fighting were outside of school and they were at a particular area in Angel. So my school was in Houston. So the quickest way home was to go get the bus 476, the bus 73, the bus 30 from Houston to where I lived in Dawson or, ne or Newington Green, and that goes past Angel. But when I go past Angel, because I'm sitting at the back of the bus, as you did when you were young, the people outside that wanted to fight me would tell me to get off the bus, and I wasn't going to not get off the bus, you know what I mean? So the only way to avoid that <laughs> was to go the longer route home, two hours. I had to go from Houston, the 253 to Finsbury Park, then from Finsbury Park to the 236 home. That was a two and a half hour journey because going from Holloway Road and all of the schools there, but nobody there knew about me and wanted to fight me. So it meant that at a very young age, I had to make a decision to inconvenience myself to avoid 
getting involved in certain situations that would deter me from focusing Why on school. Why couldn't you not get off the bus and ignore those people? I'm curious. Right, ignore. So when I get off the bus, I want to fight me. This... Right, so no, hold on, wait, 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 wait. This is what I told no, you. You said you were on, you on the bus and then they were off the bus. So they saw you and you got off. Or was it was it when you were getting off that that's the point when it was happening? No, no, no. If I, if so basically, and it, a lot of it is, a, is an influence thing, right? It's a mind thing. But at that age, at like 14, 15, 16, bear in mind, I would, I, I won all my fights here, just to say that. But if I'm on the bus and I don't get off the bus, you know, yeah, then we'll have a chase the bus. Basically, either or I'm going to fight them. If not that day, will be another moment that I will fight them because the way it was and the way it is now there is no avoiding that the only way I could avoid that was literally take myself out of that situation and you can say be at the bottom of the bus but there were people at the bottom as well that would see me so what I used to even do sometimes is when I didn't want to take when I didn't want to go home and take two hour journey I would have to hide on the bus put my head down because they were staring at the bus <laughs> They were staring. So so that's partly why I, I empathize with situations that some of us are found in because I understand the influence that occurs. But I had to take an agentic decision at age 15, 16 that inconvenienced me. I sometimes risk, not risk my life in that dramatic way, but risk my social status. Because if I continue to be in that environment, because I was never going to back down from a fight, and that was probably because I was bullying. So for me, me not backing down from a fight was me saying no to all my bullies as well. Like, you're not going to bully me. But if I keep putting myself in a situation that I'm going to fight, it, I would keep getting suspended, eventually get kicked out of school, and I would have definitely followed my GCSEs. I wouldn't have done my GCSEs. I would have gone to a PRU. So I avoided a lot of these things because I had to make a decision that was contrary to what everyone was doing at the time, which was, well, I don't want to fight. I can't avoid it if I see them. But the only way I can avoid it is basically by basically running away, not putting myself in that environment. What was it? What was it about? That's why I had to even sorry to not to cut you. Just to emphasise how agentic I had to do is I lived in North London next to Dorsten, so basically North and East London. I went to a college in South London called yeah, SFX. I remember SFX. I grew up in North, but I never SFX. Yeah. Yeah, I went. I was one of the only few people from North London, and I, the reason why I did that because everyone was like, "Why did you come to SFX for?" Because no one knows me. <laughs> if I went to any college in my area, I would not have finished college. What was the beef about? Was it just they just did not like you? No, no, it was a beef for no reason. No, okay. There, there's some. Uh, this is the, this will be a out after the podcast conversation. But forget the trash beef. <laughs> all, all I can say is. People were fighting me because I kept winning. So if you beat me, then you could take the, the, the title. Not that there was a title in that way, but I bear in mind, this was during the times of happy slapping. This was during the times of increasing numbers of people getting stabbed, um, stabbed. But thankfully, it wasn't that level of depth. It wasn't like I was fighting gangs. It was, we were in school. Some people might have been in gangs, but thankfully, I was never in a situation of getting stabbed. But that was around the situation. So there were people that were supporting influence in the fact that were of gangs. That's why I say that even though thankfully I was never in a situation where I was scuffing with knives and stuff, it could have been because when I used to fight, I would go black out. I wouldn't know what happened. It was scary. I would I would flash somebody with a with a table. And I would get supernatural stabbed from from somewhere. So thankfully I never got stabbed. Thankfully I never put anyone in hospital. But there were the fights were of no reason. There was no reason why we fought because I spoke to some of the people that I fought years later 
Why do we fight? We, like, we thought just because that was the thing to do. And because I was winning all the fights, and it was weird because whenever we fight, and it wasn't just me, you see, of a friend, we were always the minority. We would come with maybe five of us, and they would have 20 of us, and we would still win the fight. So it was that kind of weird experience. So people knew if they could fight me or whoever I was with and win, then they're the next person to beat. So maybe winning the fight were a good thing, where maybe I should have just lost one fight. I'm here now, let us do this, you know. Also, <laughs> literally, my tag name was called Rockers. I used to be called Rockers. <laughs> that was my tag name, the good old days. We got really the good old days. But, um, but yeah, that's just to demonstrate to you the environment that I was in, the environment that I was inculcated in, that I could have stayed in. I had to get myself out of that environment by fire, by force. And it took a lot to go to our home, leave school 3.30, get home before 6 o'clock, when I could literally be getting home by quarter past four, and then go to a school, a college, two hours away from my house, jump on the bus to London Bridge, the 155 from London Bridge to Tapham South, just to be in a situation where I can actually pass, you know, my A-levels. So that is the Ingazi at 10 years old. That's what you ask for, right? You know, and I can <laughs> I can relate so much to a lot of what you're saying. And I know there's a question I've been asked in the past. I'm going to ask it. Why did you feel that you couldn't go home and tell your parents what's happening? Oh, good question. Oh, that's a good question. Let me be very, it's, this is a, it's a weird thing. You know, our African parents like to forget things, right? So if I ask my mom now, she'll have a totally different recollection. Because at my wedding, she was telling everybody I was a good girl. And I was like, oh, okay. I'll take that revisionist history. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was me. Everyone laughed because they saw my face and everyone was laughing. I wouldn't know, know why everyone was laughing. I'm telling you that again. She's talking about me. Well, she, she's only got one child, so it must be me. Okay. Because when I was being bullied in primary school and my mum got involved, it made matters worse. She would come into school, she'll fight the teachers. But then what it meant is that the teachers then got irritated and angry at me. And then they made it seem like I was the problem. And it didn't protect me. So I think I learned at a very early age, getting your parent, well, getting my mum, she was the only parent I had, involved, would, would make matters worse. And, you know, my mum came to school in year seven for um, parents' evening, and she clashed with one of the teachers, and that teacher made my life a living hell. So I just understood that the dynamics and the interaction between my mum and the school, the, the authorities, doesn't work well for me. <laughs> and then when I got suspended out of school, I would act like I was going to school. So she never even knew I was um, really suspended half the time because I actually did not like being at home. At home was boring. I didn't want to watch um, the antique great show. <laughs> like, I wanted to be in school. So I would come out in my uniform, then come back home and then meet everyone at 3.30. But I didn't tell her because I don't think it would have made matters better. And I wasn't fighting because of issues at home I was fighting because of stupid things that children do at that age and then I because of where I, the, the the fighting my fighting coincided with me not getting bullied so it was more of a psychological thing I was gonna fight because it was a vent up vent up energy vent up suppression so part of this why I probably won all these fights right was because these were this was over 13 years of being bullied so everybody was getting if you come at me though I wasn't the aggressor you were getting done because I'm tired of being bullied. So the fight was also part of that. Like, why are you, why are we fighting? Okay, let's fight. Then it also became fun. We, like, the whole school got involved. So we were just going to different schools and fighting. 
it just became something kind of fun to do after school, something to talk about. So it wasn't that kind of thing of I'm angry, I'm upset. I actually hated fighting. Every time I fought, I cried. I hated fighting. But I'd rather fought than be bullied. That was my mindset. So the reason my mom didn't get involved, I didn't get her involved. I can see, I can see records all day, every day. <laughs> do you know what like, I'm oh, saying? Cool. <laughs> so, you know, um, even to this date, only God, since um, I went to sixth form in SFX, I have not seen a fight. Because God knows, if I see a fight today, today, I would get involved to defend the helpless. So the Lord, like, I'm telling you, there was always fights in SFX, but I, for some reason, never saw it, never encountered it. I nearly had a fight at SFX. It wasn't even about me. It was a, it was a person um, targeting another person. I just got angry. I said, stop, um, stop picking on her. And I stood up. And she stood up. And, and the friends were like, just sit down. I was like, no, she keeps bullying this girl. Stop it. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to get kicked out of school. <laughs> I ain't going to fight. This girl's never going to appreciate me backing her. You know, let me, just sit my, let me sit my butt down. But the Lord knew that my fights after kind of evolved into emancipation for others. I'll get involved in a fight if I saw that you're picking somebody who is weaker or more vulnerable than you. Probably why I've gone into social work, why I've gone into the fields that I've gone in. So I fight for others more than I fight for myself. Once I understood that I don't need to fight for myself anymore, I can articulate myself um, and defend myself in ways that didn't need to be, you know, done with fists. But yeah, yeah, my mom didn't get involved because we love her. But I think it would have it would have killed her as well, and I think she it would have made matters worse. And I understood the stress that she was under. She didn't need to really know I was being kicked out of school for biting. You know, she's going to think, what did she do wrong? So at that age, I was even aware of that. I was aware of how my behavior was reflected on her. That's why I, you know, I, what did we do? What's the word that you call it? When you do something else a signature. Forge. What's that word when you do something else a signature? Forge. Can't remember what you call it, that word. Yeah, I threw my mom's signature. I did bare things to avoid her finding out what I was doing because of how she would feel. That's why in year 11, when she cried and she couldn't speak, she didn't speak to me for a couple of days, it crushed me because I think for the first time I saw her pain and her struggle as a single mom and I realized that I have no excuse. I understand, I didn't understand why I was doing it. I can say it to you now as being a therapist, I've gone through it. But at that age, at 15, I knew that if I continue the path that I'm going down, I'm going to have poor outcomes. And when you asked me the question of why, it wasn't even like, oh, because, you know, real peer pressure, like how I was brought up in a gang. It was because of stupid things. I'm just fighting because that was the thing to do. And it's like, wait a minute, why am I fighting people that I don't know why we're fighting? We're just fighting because you see me, oh, she fought my cousin's friends, sisters, uncles, auntie. Nah. Half of the fights, the first few fights were for a reason. Not to do with me, but all the fights after that were like ridiculous. Nah, man. You go, you go through that. You go through bullying. You come through that ruckus stage, and then you start working from early, and then you have a completely different set of battles on your hand as you navigate in the let's call it the corporate work setting. Was there any point in time that you actually were able to make a link between some of the resilience that you built up? in the early days from when you were at school, everything else that helped you to, to navigate that space that you operated for the next eight years. And like you said, it was it was hard, it was tough. It was a whole, another level of bullying on a whole different scale that you hadn't seen before. So how did you, was that the resilience coming from previously that helped you navigate this? And what was it that shifted for you as well that allowed you to step through this eight year period? Because that's a lot of something that a lot of people go through. 
Yeah, because I haven't mentioned other things, which I don't have to go into detail, but obviously sexual abuse and mental, that depression and suicidality, that's something I struggled with alongside one of these different things. So not to make just light of my, but that's probably the best bit out of the whole other dark areas I was going through. And of course, my faith in the Lord really helped. And I think that probably was one of the salient moments in my life, you know, understanding who I am, understanding my purpose, understanding that I've got greater resources within me and around me than I, than I thought I had. And the more positive role models, um, or let's say not role models, but support systems post that. And a, a recognition that work isn't my life. I think that really helped me. Because I had a greater sense of purpose and work was just a small part of that purpose. Even though I had difficult experiences, mainly for one year in a particular workplace, but I wasn't able to articulate myself as much as I could until 2015. I could advocate for everyone else, but not for myself. I had a greater purpose. I didn't see work as it didn't define me. So coming to work and then coming out of work was just a small part of my life. I was doing so many other things outside of my life that were very rewarding. So it made it easier to navigate the corporate workplace. But I think for a lot of people, their work is their life. So it's hard to separate and have areas of your life that give you meaning if work is everything you breathe and do. Obviously the younger generation, the Gen Z's are much better at it than the older millennials and the Gen X's. But I was one of those unique people that did not identify work as my identity. So although I didn't always have great experiences at work, it didn't it didn't dictate my overall outlook on life. It was just one part of my life that I was navigating. That's a, it's interesting when I think about it because that's a lot to handle at uh, such a young age and to look at it the way that you kind of just framed it. Because what can easily happen is when you're navigating something like I said, right, sexual abuse, suicidal thoughts, all this kind of depression, you're navigating that a lot of times people go into work because that's the only safe space where I know what I'm doing, I can go in, I can show up. But you framed it really, really differently where it's like, well, I'm dealing with all this stuff in my life kind of stuff. And I recognize that actually, you know what, well, this is not my identity. This is something that I just show up and I do. Therefore, I don't let it consume me. How do you begin to separate that? And to your point you made earlier on, find your purpose, find your voice, recognize the gifts and talents that God has given you and rise through all those different things that you were navigating at that point in time. If you haven't already, can you please follow the podcast? It really helps us grow and it tells the apps that it's the podcast worth listening to. Which the fact that you're listening to means that it is and other people need to know about it. In Apple Podcast, if you click the three dots in the top right of your app, Look for the follow button and click on it. And in Spotify, the follow button should be just below the show's artwork. Now let's get back into today's episode. Wow, painful. Therapy helped. A lot of confronting what I tell a lot of my clients, both in therapy, coaching, or just in platforms like this, is that you have to confront your biggest fear. And don't do that all at one time, you know. But in the last four years, I've had to confront my biggest fear. Of these four years was fear of exposure. Prior to that, fear was maybe fear of failure, whatever that was. So each year, each season, whatever that looks like for different people, there's fears. We develop fears from childhood and then they kind of become ingrained and that kind of shapes our outlook in life. And I had to confront at each point, you know, different fears. Where do they come from? Why do they have them? What do they mean? What does the Lord say I am? You know, 
is it true? And yeah, I had to do that. I had to do a lot of soul searching, a lot of work, a lot of, you know, they call it, you know, healing of the of the darkness, you know, healing your past, healing your inner child, really giving my inner child what she never received growing up, you know, having been abandoned by, you know, her father, et cetera, et cetera, growing up in a single parent household, all the different things that I've just mentioned, really heal, forgive myself, forgive others. So a lot of healing work has to happen. At the same time, you live in life, right? So you're healing, but it's not like you're just in a nice holiday vacation. <laughs> As you're healing, you're going to work. You know what I mean? Life is life in. Adulting is adulting. So, but I think despite all of that, because I think it's why human beings are so numerous, I love it, it's so interesting, right? I'm doing all of this healing work and stuff, but I'm still succeeding. And, and that, can, that comes from many different aspects. It comes from, now that I know, that I'm not diagnosed with ADHD, but I'm undiagnosed, is that, oh, that made sense to my ADHD. Um, all of the stuff, my impulsivity, my emotional dysregulation, it now all makes sense. But because I did not have the language to diagnose or know what this was, I had to learn strategies to manage all of that and then utilize that into a strength, as we talked about pre the podcast recording. And how do I utilize my high energy? I'm high energy every single day or you know all time i'm not like necessarily that just higher in the morning but i'm better in the mornings and afternoons and in the evening so i tend to either wake up early or once i come back from work you know um study so you know, people go how are you always studying and doing your masters studying and doing this and that and it's like well because i had to utilize the energy that i had but also my energy not everybody has the energy that i have this energy that i have right I was I was told at age sixteen, oh, when you get to age twenty five, it'll calm down. When I started social work, I was told by my colleague, oh, you're just too excitable. Five years later, oh my god, English, you're still very excited. I said yes because it wasn't. It's just how I am. I wake up with energy. I've learned to tone it down because I get most people on a Monday morning, you know, are not like that, and it can be quite um, jarring and disconcerting for them. But I'm just high energy. And I know and now I understand where it comes from. So when I said to you that I was perceived as less than smart, that was because I had undiagnosed ADHD. And back in the nineties, black girls and black boys were not getting diagnosed with that. Now it's, to it's totally different. You know what I mean? Black men are getting diagnosed left, right, and center with ADHD. But when we were in the nineties, that wasn't the case. You were just told you're a bad breed or you're bad. So the 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 needs that I had were never recognized. So I had to learn to either fail and sink with them or somehow tunnel it into something that enables me to succeed in the areas that I'm now currently succeeding in. So that's how I navigated the corporate workplace and environment. And also, figures is a big um, thing, realizing that people are nasty to, to me, not because they want to be sometimes, because they, they are in an environment where they have no, they don't feel like they have a choice to be. Understanding that is not the person really. A person being flippant to you on a Monday morning or your boss saying this to you, they must have issues because there's no normal person just wakes up one day saying, I'm going to be nasty to you. So something is going on there. And then once I learned how to articulate myself, I could then stop that nip in the bud. So after 2015, I never experienced anyone coming at me. And if you did, I'd come back at you. Where it took me eight years in doing work environments because what would happen when somebody would be rude to me is I would just keep quiet. I just didn't know how to articulate myself because all I knew when I was in school was to fight. But I know I can't fight at work. So all I did was keep quiet until I was able to say no. And then I was able to articulate myself from there. Do you remember the first time 
but you did that in 2015 and what that felt like. Oh, I remember the first time. I remember the first time. If you want something to laugh for your audience, yeah? Let me tell you two stories, yeah? Let me tell you the day, the moment that I stopped getting bullied. I'll tell you the day, the moment I stopped letting anyone speak to me anyhow at work, right? So there were these two girls in, in secondary school in my art class. Now, I hate art. So you imagine your worst subject you hate and you're getting picked on, picked on. And you could hear them. So it's not like they're over there. They're right next to me. I can hear them, right? And I think one day, this is all premeditated. I planned this. I said, today is the day that they are getting it. I said, no way. I am no more coming to my worst subject to get picked on. I sat there in silence. Yeah. It was crazy because you could hear a pin drop. And when I look back on it, they must have known something was going to happen because the moment the alarm went off, the way they ran out of that class, right? I was only able to grab one of them. But she wasn't even the one I really wanted. I wanted the smaller one because her mouth was sharper. But she ducked out, she ducked under the table and came out. And I was able to grab that one, at least one of them, I put her in a chokehold and I did what I had to do. And so when I got suspended, I was happy. I actually said, thank you. <laughs> I was happy. I did not care because that was my emancipation. Now, um, that was my secondary school kind of saying no more being bullied. Then the work one, well, I was on a training course. Um, I was a social worker, I was on a training course, doing an extra um, qualification. And we were in a group and there was this older white lady, and I think this lady was either white or Asian, um, two people, and they were trying to control the group. Like we were given a task and then the next day they created the PowerPoint without our input. So we were like, that's not going to work. We're not, we're the type of people that are trying to ride on your coattails, right? So there was a particular guy who came in the training, I think, and they were too late and we were sitting down. And they were just very rude to him. I said, can you stop being rude to him, please? Like, just because he came in late, if he's been allowed to come to this course, it's fine. Then we were sitting down in the library, and we are having a disagreement about something in social work. I disagreed, and she had the audacity to say to me, oh, well, well like, she just said something like, oh, you were social work on whatever. So I said, how dare you? I remember saying that, I said, how dare you speak to me like that? You do not judge me. Just because we're having a disagreement does not take away from my expertise nor yours. Then she was like, hey, oh, oh, let's call the teacher. Yeah, the lecturer. This is a big woman, by the way. I'm 24, and she's in her 40s. Okay. She calls the lecturer. The lecturer comes. She's thinking the lecturer's going to side with her. The lecturer, here's our point of view, and goes, wow, amazing. Keep it up. He was happy that there was discourse. She was Rex. She thought that he was going to side with her. He decided with me. He just thought conversation was good. And that was the end of that. And then what happened the next day, the last day, nobody said nothing to them. Nobody talked to them. They said what they did, they ended up isolating themselves. No one spoke to them because their behavior was absolutely disgusting. They spoke to me disgustingly. Feel people that disgustingly. We never took it. Me, I never took it. And they left the training, we hug each other, and they were out there by themselves. Whether they cared or not, I don't know. But the, the, the point is, is that they started off very strong on the Monday answering all the questions to the, by the Friday, nobody cared about them, nobody said bye to them, nobody said anything to them because they were nasty, they were bullish. This, this is all, I mean, I'm the youngest, everybody's in their big 40s and 50 year old social workers and you're treating people like we're children. But that was the day I said no, because I said, why are you speaking to me so rudely? 
what what profession is it? I might be younger than and younger than you. I might be honest with my mother, but you ain't got to speak to me in this way. So when I defended myself, and in a weird way validated by the teacher because he didn't get, take anyone's side, but he actually appreciated the discourse. He said, "This is discourse. You don't have to take it personal. You're you're you have two points of view that both valid. Why was she taking it personal and insulting my?" years of experience. That means she had, she had greater issues. She couldn't handle somebody else challenging her views. From that day on, I felt differently. I, f I finally said no. I finally said, don't, you know, set my boundaries. Don't speak to me that way. You can tell me off. You can tell me don't agree with something. You haven't got to be rude. I'm not rude to people. Yeah, so that was that moment for me. And then from 2015, very confident at work. Um, and when I say this, bear in mind, nobody else told me not confident in work. So I understand that people did not perceive me as one minute was not confident, one minute confident. But I understood that I didn't feel I, my role was um, congruent. I felt always a bit of a certain way, especially in high conflict environments. Cause I didn't have to defend myself or articulate myself. But from that 2015, I felt that I could articulate myself now and say, they speak to me in this way, et cetera, et cetera. Not just by email, not just by, you know, writing, but I can actually articulate myself verbally. 2004 and 2015, the two critical moments of me, I guess, say, you know, tri triumphing as the underdog. And yeah, triumphing as the underdog and essentially asserting my boundaries. I think that's what it is. Being a bully, it means that. And obviously it's a bit deeper than it's not, oh, you're not setting your boundaries because you're being physically bullied, like, <laughs> you know, you're being physically bullied, you're being violated. But that, it means there's a level of violation. When you're being bullied or when you're, people are intruding on you, they're, they're just going through your boundaries, they're rubbishing it, they're discarding it, they're making you feel like you're insignificant, you're not relevant. So I think in those seminal moments, I recognised my worth. No, no, yeah, I recognised it. I, I demonstrated my worth. You can recognise your worth, but I demonstrated my worth. I no longer cared what people thought of me. And I said, I'm going, I can defend other people, but I need to defend myself. But I can't, I can't, if I can't defend myself, what is the point? And also I was tired. A lot of it is just, I'm tired. It's like, this is, this is boring now. What do I get from being insulted and going home and crying? Why not articulate that this is not right? in this moment. At the end of the day, the reality is, and as well for a lot of black women when they get racially bullied, there's sometimes nobody's there to defend you, nobody's there to, to support you. So you've got to build some internal resources within yourself. And hopefully you might now, that now in 2023, there are support systems in place to support you. But I know for many years, we don't have that as black women, we don't have that as black people. So. The worst thing is when you come and tell your friends, oh, I should have said this, you know, you're so happy and stuff, like, ah, oh, man, I should have said this. No, 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 I was tired of that. I was like, in the moment, if you're disrespectful, I am going to say, that's not it. And I believe to myself, I believe that I can now articulate myself without resorting to fact. Not that I always thought I would, and you didn't know how to articulate yourself. If you grow up in an environment where you only fight to defend yourself, you were suppressed in speaking, so when you first said no to a person to stop winning you, it was a fight. You continued that for many years. You then you avoid fighting by putting yourself in different environments, but you're not equipped with the tools to communicate. You're thrown into working with people 10, 15 years older than you. You recognize that, right, people don't leave. People are not different. Adults are not just different from children. Like, basically, adults are like secondary school. You're trying to understand clicks different lingo, the corporate lingo, the way the the mainstream people speak, you know, the way I come from a black African background, the way you articulate yourself in a very white middle class environment, 
There's so many things you're trying to learn, what you're meant to say, what you're not meant to say, you know, passive aggressiveness is like you're trying to understand like <laughs> the indirectness that's happening all around you, the microaggressions, the same as that you're trying to learn, the same time you're trying to be competent, do your job well, etc., etc. All of these different things that I had to learn, navigate, which is not unique to me, many of us do, plus obviously what I bring, my history that I bring with it, 2015 was that moment where again in twenty in two thousand and four, oh it it it, it comes out of power. It comes that coincided with power, you know. Yes. Um, but it it coincided with a decision that I think a lot of black women and a lot of black men and a lot of ethnic people have to make and say, okay, am I going to be determined by the environment that I'm in, by circumstances that I was born into? Do I have a level of agency? Do I have a level of resource within myself, both external and internal, to drive home change, to stop a particular violation, to whatever it is, to create change within myself? And that was that moment. Well, on my um, my podcast logo, I have something called Leader from the Inside Out, not from the Outside In. And you've just broken that down in such a succinct, beautiful way, because that's what it's about. It's about recognizing the fact that we don't always control our circumstances, but we do have the the choice around how we choose to react to what's happening around us. And we can let our environments dictate that, or we can step into that and dictate that. But that's not always easy. That's why it's been so great to listening to your story. I know you do a lot of work, um, obviously speaking and coaching a lot of black women in particular in, in the corporate space. What are some practical steps that you would give someone who's listening to you right now who's saying, and goes, I'm, I'm struggling to find my voice. I'm struggling to be able to navigate the space and place I find myself in. I'm very much like you were before. I just stay quiet, even though I'm seeing a lot of microaggressions happen to me. And I don't actually want to leave there where I'm in, but I don't know how I can cope. What are some practical things that you say to that person? So. I'm going to talk about both the internal and external that you can do because the pr- practicalities are sometimes we want it to be external, but sometimes the work is internal as well. First thing is you don't know your voice until you have a space where you can articulate your voice. So if if you can't articulate it in work, do you have any other space where you are showing your voice? If not, then there's a lot more work you need to do. So you first got to reflect and ask yourself, is this just a work situation or a life situation? Sometimes, sometimes it's a life situation. I was fortunate that, but in 2015, it was just a worse situation in life. You could have messaged me outside the work, but in work, I was oh, in my head, maybe not other people, but I thought I was timid. If it is just a worse situation, then you've got to find those spaces where you can, you have your voice and get gained support from there, pull on the resources from there. What is it about that environment that enables you to have your voice? What can you then bring from that environment to your work environment? You've got to break down the steps that you're taking to articulate your voice in another environment so you can then transport that into a different environment. You can't change everything, but you're the same person. So what is it about in this environment where you're, you should articulate yourself and you feel that there's a bit of safety to say things wrong, right? That's that's what I believe is important. Um, that may not, you may not have another group. So that's what I'm saying, environment, environment can be therapy. It could be your church. It could be family. It could be extracurricular activities. It could be going to landmark, doing personal development courses, um, toast. What's it called? Toastmaster. Sign up to a program. You know, getting a code. You need to find an environment. Sometimes you've got to pay for it. Sometimes they're free. Where 
you are cultivating your voice. And then it could be even a hobby, doing performing arts, doing certain things that are outside of your comfort zone that will stretch you. Then you can begin to transport that within the work environment. But you have to be ready to know that it may work or not work. You can articulate your voice and you might get resistance. And then that might be signal that you've got to leave that place. Because that can be harmful and dangerous. And it doesn't encourage your psychological safety. But you won't know until you do it. So you have to, you've got to take a risk. And when you get your voice and you feel like, okay, I think I can transport that into my work environment. Just be aware that you might do that and it might not. It might cause resistance because they've been used to you not having your voice. That's one thing. So if it's, a, it's, a, if it's your whole life, then you got to get more help. You probably got to go seek therapy, get a coach, because that's going to forget a word. If you can't articulate your voice in your family life, that's, that's dangerous. So everywhere you got to deal with that. But if it's just work, then yeah, transport from another environment. Um, a second thing that you've got to do, um, I, think that's, I think that's the key thing. If you can do that, then that that, that empowers you to go, okay, What's your strategy for your life? Life does not work according to plan. We get that. But do you have an overall strategy? How do you know when you are fulfilled? You've got to define that for yourself. What are your self-fulfillment criteria? What are your self-success criteria? If not, you always remain under your potential and remain complacent in your comfort zone. So once you understand and articulate your voice, that's asserting your boundaries, knowing yourself, becoming more self-aware about who you are, then you begin to ask yourself, what drives me? There's nothing wrong if you want to say at entry level or junior management. Not everybody has to do a business. Not everybody has to go at the top. Your goal in life could just be to be an amazing parent and be to be a good wife, to be a good spouse. That is fine. But if you do have external goals outside of that, then define what they are. What does that look like for you? Because you recognize that what it what the goal is and how you get there is totally different because the red God sometimes makes you go through different journeys, a different labyrinth, up and down. That's life. But the goal is I want to be able to be a CEO in a company so I can enable X, Y, Z. That might take 10, 15 years, but we have a goal. So I think the first thing is self-awareness that leads from everything. Build self-awareness. You can only build that from a mirror. And a mirror is a coach. A mirror is a therapist. A mirror is a group of people that that can give you constructive feedback. A mirror is a personal development program. You cannot find that looking in your mirror at home, telling yourself, I'm amazing. I'm wonderful. That's, that it doesn't work like that, yeah? That's, that's what fairy tales do and motivational speakers tell you it ain't work, yeah? What works is... Um, they affirmations, look in the mirror, speak to yourself. Yeah, but affirmations from what? Just because you tell yourself that you think you're, you're a good person. What does that mean? You need to have evidence of that. Because what happens to people with the affirmations that one negative experience crash, crushes all those affirmations? Right? The way you build affirmations is by finding evidence of the very thing that you're building it from. So when I say to people, right, I'm a good speaker, it's because I have evidence of me being a good speaker by the feedback I get from people telling me I'm a good speaker. And then it builds my esteem to I'm actually a good speaker. Now, if I do one speech that isn't good compared to the 10 I've done well, it means that I'm not a perfect speaker. I've got things to improve. But if I just told myself, I'm a good speaker, I'm a good speaker, I'm a good speaker, I get told that I'm, that wasn't a good speech. Oh my God, I'm a terrible speaker. That's what happens. One negative, um, one negative feedback can spin your whole self-esteem because your self-esteem is built on empty words that have nothing to, to behind it. But that's just me and some therapists do love that. I'm just not that type of person. I love those affirmations. Affirmations are good if they're bit on everything. 
So I build on evidence. I'm, so, I'm with you. <laughs> so let me let me let me summarize. Practical practicalities. Let me summarize. Okay, I can go on further. This podcast is sponsored by Mindset Shift, a leadership development company focused on helping you lead from the inside out, not from the outside in. We work one-on-one with senior leaders in organizations. We work directly with HR and other parts of the organizations to help you create an authentic culture where your words and your values and your actions all align. We help you to navigate the complexity and the chaos that we all experience day in and day out. And we have a couple of openings for the one-to-one coaching this year. If that's something that you're interested in, if you want to work with a coach who can help you navigate this year to ensure that you're intentional to take your leadership skills personally and professionally to the next level, send me an email at hello at mindsetshift.co.uk or just go to the website www.mindsetshift.co.uk. Now let's get back into today's episode. So first and foremost, any person listening to the sound of my voice or watching this, yeah, my key thing for you is understand thyself. And you can't understand thyself until you have a mirror. Preferably not your mirror in your own house, okay? You have to stretch yourself and come out of your comfort zone. You need to get to the point where you're putting yourself in environments. And I'm saying outside of work. Don't use work as your testing ground, okay? Outside of work is where you do that too, right? If you can't afford the things, then you get, have you got a friend? Have you got a critical friend? If you ain't got no friends that are critical, then you got to find some friends. Go on the meetup app. So there are so many agentic ways that you can do. You start small. If you've got money, get a coach like Sope. If you've got if you've got money, do a personal personal coaching program that Sope has. If you don't have money, you can start off going in a meetup group and finding people. There, there's so many groups for everything. So don't find excuses. Find solutions. And you ain't got to start with one. Pow, pow. Come with like a sense. And you said it, this person's coming in your heart. She invites me like. You know what? There's a point you made earlier on which made me laugh, but it's so relevant. And it's about when you actually start to speak out, people around you are going to be like, yeah, what's going on? And there's something that a lot of people don't talk about enough. You're like, yeah, speak up, do this, do that. But I'm like, yeah, but you recognize that you're changing your environment. So the people that are so used to you being so meek and humble or wherever you want to define it, they're going to be like, and that create some, some friction. That's what I love when you mentioned that. Like, that's something that people need to recognize. It's part of the journey. It's part of the growth. So I remember at the start of the year, I saw a lot of memes and gifs of, People saying like, dear Lord, this year, I don't want to be one of your strongest soldiers. Like, give me, give me an easy life here. But, you know, what's funny, tongue in cheek, but it's a recognition that actually to grow through or to grow to become the person that you want to be, you're going to have to navigate some difficulty and some challenges. And everything that you said from that practical level just speaks into that. How do you, I guess, have that foundation, internal foundation that allows you to then be able to build to be able to then do all the different things you want to do. And it's not just about work. Like the whole, it's who you are as a person, that personal, professional, all coming together as you, the individual. And that's why they do it. Your inner work is really, really key. So I love those. I love those gems and those, those, those fires. 
that you were dropping. And um, in fact, no, it's too aggressive. How do you define leadership? How do I define leadership? I define leadership in three ways. So there's self-leadership, there's people leadership, and there's organizational leadership. Now I'm talking about in the, in the, in the context of like you're a leader, um, a business leader or a leader in a company. If you're just leading yourself or leading your family, um, they still quite apply actually. I think they apply across the board. So self-leadership is about the intrinsic qualities that you need as a, as a leader within yourself and what others will identify within you. Organizational leadership is how you, you know, lead the organization, the strategy, the direction, the creativity, problem solving skills that you need to, to have as a leader. And the people leadership is how you lead people, right? Some people, um, and self-leadership, sorry to add to that, is also about emotional intelligence. Yeah, the part is about is your, is your level of emotional intelligence um, and that links with people leadership, right? What we find is that there's some people that are very good at organizationally. They can, they're, they're, they're driven, they're creative, they're strategic, they're risk-taking, but they cannot relate to their, their employees. They're not able to engender their employees. Their, their employees lack the vision that the the CEO has and the leader has. So people leadership is also very important. Is that that's the collaboration. That is the glue that holds everything together and ensures that you are able to push through the vision as a leader that you're called to be. We see that amongst Jesus. We see that amongst all the patriarchs in the Bible. The greatest leaders in the world were had self-leadership. They were disciplined. They were courageous. They were risk takers. They whether they had an organization like an institution. They, 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 they had an organization, they had an organism that they ran, that had a clear goal, defined mission, that was going somewhere, moving forward, and they were able to engender a people that continued the organization after the person passed away. Why do movements end once a leader dies? It's because that leader was not a great leader. A great leader, both bad or otherwise, I don't mean a bad leader, a great leader that's done bad things, and that has done good things, has a movement that continues after, preserves the values, the beliefs, the logic of that leader. That's what I think leadership is. That's, a, that's very big, right? Let me not get it, that's the personal, because that's quite grand, that's quite big. What do I define as leadership? I believe a leader truly is a server. So if you want to be a leader, if you're called to be a leader, you first are a server. Jesus made that very clear in the Bible and I take his view on leadership as the ultimate one. You are a server. The reason why I'm a leader is that I never self-appointed myself as a leader. I served. I saw what needed to be done in the community and I did that. See need and feel a need. When you see need and feel a need, people will be engendered to follow after you because most people, majority of the world is living below their potential. Majority of the world is living in their comfort zone. When people see people going into their stretch zones, doing something different, that's attractive. People follow. And if you can sustain that, if you can sustain the follow and leader relationship, because you can technically can't be a leader if you're not with no followers. If you can sustain that relationship and you're serving and you're giving value to those that follow after you and you're able to get value, you're able to take value from them, that's a leader. That could be your children. It doesn't have to be a massive thing. It can be your workplace, your group, your team. You might have a little team from a massive company and a big team and you know stuff like that so it's from the smallest to the largest it applies throughout all different modes and systems and what are you most proud of in everything that you've done everything you've achieved what are you most proud of doing god's will 
that's the shortest thing I've said to her. That's that's it. Doing birds wrong. Yeah, doing birds wrong. There's nothing else to add or take away to that. That's the most thing I'm proud of because at the end, when he says to me, he's going to say, good and faithful servant. That is. That's powerful. And I want to say thank you. Thank you for being open, being real, being vulnerable. And every single thing that you have talked about, even just the way you describe stuff, or is this plain for people just to see this is just you doing, you and being you. And um, we didn't delve deep into some of the things that you currently do right now. But even, I just want to mention, even as a, a front-end therapist, um, which Ngozi created, which has been focused on really making a difference um, for Black, Asian, uh, minority ethnic individuals, has I think it's reached like over a thousand, thousand five hundred people, and that's an area that we know when it comes to therapy, mental health, and in, in the community is really underserved and underfunded. But that's just some of the ways in which she's done. Let's talk about the culture and everything else like that. So this is someone who knows what she's on about, someone who's making a difference, doing God's work in everything that she does, and that's why I thought it was just so important just to get her more out there, get her more exposed to people, so you can. You can see how you can work with her, see how you can partner with her, see where she can come in and give you amazing speeches, you know, like she's done, like she's done today. And you're able to have great examples of what that looks like when a, te- te- um, a TEDx talk comes out um, shortly as well. But thank you very much. Really, like, we could have gone and chatted for time, you know what I mean? So really loved and really appreciated the conversation and your authenticity, man. Like, this is what we need to see more of this in the world. People just keeping it real, doing themselves. And just every day, like I said, every every year, new fear, overcoming that. And the more you overcome your fears, the more you end up encouraging and inspiring the people to do exactly the same. And that for me is what, how you define an everyday leader. So thank you. No, thank you. And I just would love to say that your incisive questions, I think a good interview has a lot to do with the interviewer and how you create and create the environment that allows me to feel safe and feel that I can speak and you're genuinely curious and interested in what the person which is myself has to say makes it like it's just an effortless flow so thank you absolute pleasure this is Everyday Leadership we'll see you next week while you're still recovering from that amazing conversation let me give a quick preview of what we got coming up next week. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss out. So I am the first of six children. And as a teenager, I was somebody, if you talk to my parents, in fact, my dad always shares a story when I was five. He found me kind of like in a sea of newspapers, just kind of like had them all over, spread over the living room. He was just like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm looking for common sense because he told me like he had said something about like oh you need to have common sense and I was like looking for common sense so I've always been this very curious child I've always been this person who likes to research and read and like you know my favorite things at home at the time was like I had Encarta like you know this is back before Google like the full collection of Encarta that was my happy place the library was my happy place